You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. All right, well, well, welcome everyone. It's, it's great to see so many of you here. Um, I'd like to thank Krika and the Center for German and European Studies at UW-Madison for sponsoring this event, and Jennifer Tischler and her incredible team at Krika for hosting us today. Um, I'm really excited to introduce our speaker. Um, Stefan Leek is an Associate Professor of History at Dartmouth College, where he focuses on economic history and the intellectual history of capitalism. He received his PhD in history at Harvard in 2012. And he's here today to talk about his book, which is, um, I, it's just such a great book. I can't say enough good things about it. Um, so this is his path-breaking book, um, Forging Global Fordism, Nazi Germany, Soviet Russia, and the Contest Over the Industrial Order, which was published by Princeton last year in 2020. Um, so as I said, I'm a huge fan of this book. Um, first of all, it's a remarkable work of scholarship drawing on archival research in five different countries. And it's, it's careful, but it's also filled with really big ideas about international relations, about the history of capitalism, and about the flow of technology and ideas across borders. And as a Soviet historian, I, I just, I really especially appreciate the way that he puts the Soviet Union and Germany back into the history of the world economy. So it, it's, it's, a, and it's just also just a great read. It's a really enjoyable book to read. So I highly recommend it. So, um, I will, I'm just going to stop talking and, and turn things over and, and, and welcome. So glad you could be with us here today. Thank you for uh, inviting me, uh, Fran. Um, I'm, I really appreciate it. And I'm very happy to be here. And it's great to see so many people in the room. Uh, thank you uh, to Krika uh, for hosting. And thanks for this uh, very kind introduction, uh, Fran. I, what I want to do today is uh, really uh, not much at all is, <laughs> you know, I guess, the easy part after, um, after spending probably too many years uh, writing this book. Uh, now, I, now all I do have to do is uh, now I get to talk about it. So I'm going to um, talk about the book uh, a little bit. Um, and uh, the way this is going to work is, uh, you know, after uh, I'll, I'll just briefly say a few things about the central argument. Uh, you know, there's a lot going on in the book, but uh, I think there are a few central claims that I will try to front load. And then uh, I'm just going to give a brief overview of the five chapters via um, some of the images and some key quotes that show up in the book. So it will be a little bit more suggestive. Um, because, uh, of course, what I want to tell you what's in the book um, maybe, uh, you know, leave enough open for you to uh, be curious enough to uh, then actually um, uh, pick it up and, uh, and read it. Um, but uh, so what is, what is the book uh, about? Uh, the title is uh, Forging Global Fordism, Nazi Germany, Soviet Russia, and the Contest Over the Industrial Order. And uh, it's, it's really uh, about um, how Fordism, uh, technologically and ideologically spread uh, roughly in the period from 1920 to uh, the end of uh, World War II uh, from the United States, uh, into particular uh, uh, Germany and uh, Soviet Russia, though I try to put this uh, story within a larger global context. And uh, I always have to, uh, have to uh, start with uh, a big caveat. Uh, so Fordism is uh, a notoriously 
uh, overcharged, conceptually overcharged term. And so I should uh, say at the outset, what I mean with it or the way I use it in the book uh, is uh, actually fairly pragmatic and uh, fairly, uh, I hope, not too disappointing to you, uh, fairly narrow in the sense that what I mean when I talk about the spread of Fordism there is, uh, is primarily the technological capacity to uh, mass produce uh, complex goods, uh, notably uh, automobiles. But uh, during World War II, I have a chapter on the war in the book. Uh, this also involves um, involves uh, a, a aeroplane, a, a aero engines, and various apparatuses for uh, other military material, which I argue are really important if you want to understand the rise of what is classically called Fordism, uh, namely a, a period of um, a mass, mass production, mass consumption, often uh, associated with the post-war period in the industrialized West. So I don't mean that. It is more that by focusing on what Fordism actually meant to contemporaries in the 1920s in particular, and how it was implemented in its technological aspects in the 1930s, that that really changes our understanding of how you know, post-war Fordism, in fact, came about. Um, and so if there's a central argument to uh, the book, uh, it is, uh, I've, I've written, up, uh, written it up here. So, uh, you know, the, the, the book is about how Fordism spread and uh, the argument is about how uh, and why. And what I say here, what I argue in the book is that the spread of Fordism in the interwar years, uh, first of all, so I, I make the point that it is really uh, in the 1920s that it ideologically hits across the world. And then the 1930s that it's uh, technological adaptation and industrial adaptation across the world really takes place. And so this spread uh, of Fordism during the interwar years, so this is actually a, a quote from the book, um, arose uh, from an antagonistic development competition that was initially triggered by the rise of the United States and then accelerated uh, by the Great Depression. And so what do, what do, what do I mean by uh, what do I mean by that? So I, I put uh, the, the uh, proliferation of uh, Fordism, uh, Fordisms, one, one, should, one should say, into uh, a, a framework that was suggested, uh, I think, or most is, is, is widely known, uh, suggested by, by uh, Adam Tooze in uh, both his uh, books on the Nazi economy and his uh, follow-up book, which incidentally is a kind of prequel to the Nazi economy book, The Deluge, uh, which talks about um, in the geopolitical consequences and the seismic shifts, if you want, uh, geopolitically, but also economically, that were induced by uh, the remarkable rise of the United States since the late 19th century to uh, first economic and then uh, undisputed uh, political hegemon uh, in the 20th century. And uh, essentially the anxiety, uh, both cultural, but also very in very real economic terms that this induced in um, well, the other uh, other other parts of the world, notably obviously uh, in Europe, uh, Western Europe, uh, Germany, uh, France, uh, Great Britain, Italy, but also uh, in other rising powers such as uh, Japan and uh, Russia, both uh, in Tsarist times and after uh, after the revolution. And so, what triggers this proliferation of um, you know advanced production techniques? Uh, in each of these cases, you can look, uh, you see at a certain point uh, in, the in the first decades of the 20th century, a kind of self-diagnosis of relative industrial weakness. Uh, so uh, this happens in Germany, this happens uh, in the Soviet Union in the 1920s, but one could point to other uh, contexts here too. Uh, again, uh, one could reconstruct a parallel, not a similar, but a parallel story for uh, say Britain, uh, uh, France, Japan, 
or uh, Italy. And though I don't do this in the book, I try to gesture to these uh, uh, to these uh, contexts. So, and this uh, self-diagnosis of relative industrial weakness or of backwardness. Uh, self-diagnosis of backwardness, as it was often called, uh, particularly in the Soviet context, backwardness is, uh, you know, a headache uh, for uh, the Bolsheviks. Um, this leads to, well, technology transfers and industrial policy, activist industrial policy, particularly after this uh, kind of self-diagnosis uh, of uh, relative weakness and uh, economic anxiety is reinforced by the experience of the great uh, depression. Uh, and why? Uh, so one could talk about other industries too. I just think that uh, there's a case to be made here that uh, Fordism with its association uh, with the automobile industry is uh, particularly important because this is clearly identified left and right uh, as a key sector in uh, the new American economy uh, since the 1910s, uh, correctly so. This is the new lead sector uh, in American industry uh, during that period. Um, but it also has a military industrial component, which is absolutely crucial. Um, the, the capacity, uh, again, the knowledge and technological capacity to uh, mass produce uh, complex gear is uh, absolutely central for the military industrial anxieties and ambitions of the activist states of the 1930s. And hence, it is no surprise that this is what they latch on to. And uh, what they do in effect, and this is a large part of what uh, the story I tell in the book, is send engineers uh, to the United States, uh, to uh, Southeastern Michigan in particular, uh, to Detroit, to the Ford Motor Company, but also to uh, the plants of General Motors, and uh, try to look at how is mass production done, uh, try to uh, buy or copy the technology in uh, various ways with various strategies, uh, bring that back home and institute uh, an industrial system that is adapted, obviously, to um, national patterns uh, and national contexts, but uh, very much draws on uh, the American uh, example. Um, let's see. So um, there, there, I think beyond uh, the main argument here uh, that sort of sets up the frame, I think there are two key interventions that the book uh, also makes. Uh, so one is simply the history of Fordism itself and the history of the automobile industry, where uh, through uh, focusing here on the interwar reception, I uh, try and highlight the key role of states and the key role of active uh, and uh, dedicated industrial policy in uh, well, making and shaping the fortunes of uh, 20th century automobile sectors. Uh, the history of Fordism and the history of the automobile industry in the literature has generally been approached from the perspective, uh, with good reasons, obviously, of labor history, the history of industrial revelation, uh, the history of industrial relations, um, the the um, the uh, tech, uh, the history of technology and, uh, and uh, business history often. So from the perspective of the managerial and uh, profit strategies of firms and the big missing element, it seemed to me, is uh, the role of states. And this is of course a role I think that is uh, becoming clearer to us or has become clearer to us uh, in the 21st century with uh, the rise of China and the success of uh, East Asian developmentalist models in which the state is heavily involved. Uh, in, uh, well, nurturing, shaping uh, industrial sectors uh, with um, momentous consequences for the global political economy and uh, international competitiveness. Uh, and this is, uh, you know, is obviously, you know, not a coincidence, but uh, the desired result. And I think another intervention here is um, to uh, sit alongside in a new way. So this has often been done, obviously, uh, since the heady days of, uh, of totalitarianism. 
uh, when we used to talk about these reg regimes as the totalitarian regimes, to try and uh, set Soviet Union, uh, the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany alongside each other in a, a comparative way, but in a new perspective. Uh, by asking, by not only comparing them to each other, by actually asking how do they fit into what might be termed a larger taxonomy, a larger classification of 20th century developmental states. So one of the things I do uh, in the book is uh, I try and identify the uh, de developmental agenda of each of these regimes, uh, Stalinism uh, and Nazism, uh, which is obviously shaped by the relative degree of, uh, well, underdevelopment vis-a-vis -vis the United States, um, and uh, inflected, obviously, by, uh, by uh, ideological uh, predilections, but uh, they emerge, nevertheless, uh, with very clear characteristics of um, what has been identified as developmental states in a larger global purview uh, throughout the 20th century in the heterodox literature, mostly in political science and, uh, uh, and comparative sociology and some economics about uh, East Asian uh, developmental states uh, try to uh, you know open up a larger conversation about pointers of comparison that I think have not uh, been used uh, so far because we've you know stared at these regimes I think within uh, kind of kind of paradigms derived from Cold War preoccupations um, that uh, and uh, that may allow for a new uh, new kinds of conversations and new uh, new insights. Now the book, uh, as I as I said. Uh, I'm, I'm going to give a brief overview over uh, the book and uh, try and not to take uh, not to take up uh, too much time doing so. Um, the book uh, broadly consists of five chapters, framed obviously by an introduction and a conclusion. Uh, the introduction lays out the land, uh, much in the way that I've I tried to, uh, in a, in a shorthand fashion uh, right now. Uh, then five chapters uh, and, a, and a conclusion. Chapter one is really American history, where I actually go back to the very roots of uh, Ford's mass production in southeastern Michigan and do a little bit of revisionist history on American turf. Um, uh, uh, regarding, uh, well, the rise of mass production and uh, the rise of the Ford Motor Company in particular, interpreting them as springing from populist uh, roots. I'll say a little bit more about that in a second. Uh, the second chapter, broadly speaking, is uh, global intellectual history, where I talk about the absolutely remarkable impact of uh, an unlikely bestseller, which is Ford's so-called autobiography, it's more—it's more like a—it's it's actually kind of a, a kind of social political pamphlet more than an autobiography. Also, not uh, written by him. I talk about that in the book. So, uh, but Ford's Bible of the Modern Age uh, traces uh, how this book, which is published in 1922, My Life and Work is read uh, really across the globe. Um, in particular, my focus obviously is uh, Germany and uh, the Soviet Union, where there's a remarkable re reception around this. Uh, chapter three and four then turn to the practical uh, transfer. So this is uh, a lot of this is technolo uh, technology transfer and history of political economy uh, of mass production capacity into first in chapter three, the Soviet Union. In chapter four, I talk about how that works in the Nazi case, uh, where uh, it works quite differently. Um, simply, uh, simply by virtue of the fact that uh, the big American uh, automobile corporations, General Motors and Ford, have branches in Germany uh, in uh, the 1930s when the Nazis take power. And so the kind of um, engagement of, of foreign corporations that uh, takes place is uh, you know, very different than the one that takes place in uh, the Soviet Union, but the goal is the same, uh, or at least uh, is, well, if not exactly the same, uh, is, is parallel in the sense that uh, both, uh, both regimes here try to build up a, a capable uh, mass production industry 
for um, civilian bragging rights, but uh, but not least for military industrial uh, purposes. Uh, and this is the theme of uh, chapter five, where I talk a little bit about how the differential uh, reception uh, technology transfers and their insertion into, well, social and uh, technological contexts of, well, the receiving country, how this uh, plays out and pays off uh, during uh, World War II and give a little bit of perspective uh, on, uh, you know, from, from this particular angle on uh, an old but uh, very important question, which is, uh, you know, why is it actually, why, why did the Soviet Union why did the Soviet economy overperform in World War II to the extent that it was able to uh, outlast, you know, outproduce, and uh, and ultimately defeat uh, its uh, Nazi opponent, obviously with uh, very consequential uh, results for the remainder of uh, the. 20th uh, century. So, um, you know, just briefly, uh, I'll, I'll try to be as succinct as possible. Uh, I promised you key quotes and a couple of images from uh, each of these uh, chapters, uh, you know, just uh, to, uh, I think, whet your appetite a little bit, uh, give you a little bit of um, a feel for the book rather than just, uh, you know, throwing uh, its arguments and content uh, at you. So in chapter one, what I really argue is uh, that uh, we've, uh, we've been uh, misunderstanding much of the history, uh, uh, the rise of mass production in the American context. So this is really American history that I do uh, do uh, there. Uh, in particular, looking at the Ford Motor Company and trying to understand Henry Ford and the, uh, the corporation that he built, uh, not so much as a generic avatar of advancing American capitalism, uh, the way in which it is uh, often a kind of cliched version all, uh, almost uh, understood, but actually as the result of a specific political economic and political ideological context, and that is that of producer populism, of uh, the 19th century producer populism that was rampant in the Midwest. So as a, a, a variant, if you want, of uh, the kind of populist uh, revolt uh, that uh, that uh, you know rippled through uh, the United States uh, political economy since the 19th century. It's uh, better known in its agrarian variants, but uh, if you look at the Midwest and uh, a place like Michigan in particular, it has its counterpart among uh, the small machining shops and uh, and uh, mechanics uh, of uh, of that area who have a specific uh, you know technological uh, spin to that uh, producer uh, populism. And this is Henry Ford's uh, milieu. This is where it comes from. And if you look closely the way that uh, the Ford Motor Companies run in the 1910s, 1920s, and 1930s, it looks very different from uh, how General Motors uh, comes to be run. So I spent a large, uh, a large part of that chapter really talking about these differences, which are encapsulated here, I think, by these two quotes. Uh, here's Henry Ford from My Life and Work uh, saying something uh, kind of uh, counterintuitive for a, a captain, an American captain of industry. Uh, but this is the kind of rhetoric, which I will argue in the next chapter, uh, that endears him to uh, especially post-liberal radicals uh, abroad on the right. The primary object of the manufacturing corporation is to produce uh, uh, Henry Ford says, and if that objective is always kept, finance becomes a wholly secondary matter. What you see here, uh, what you see here shining through is, uh, is I think, very uh, characteristic of this producer populist sentiment, which has, uh, you know, a critique of, um, of Eastern finance, uh, of uh, that marriage of Eastern finance and corporate capital coming out of the great merger movement. Uh, that is so uh, dominant in the American political economy uh, during uh, that time. Uh, so a kind of impetus 
uh, impetus against uh, countervailing uh, forces in uh, in uh, the American political economy of the time. Uh, other countervailing forces are even more counterintuitive. I can uh, talk about that in the Q&A if necessary. So there's a differentiation between Fordism and Taylorism that you can talk about. Ford's mechanics actually uh, had a little truck with uh, Taylor's prescriptions uh, for uh, for uh, you know ideological and uh, sociological reason, reasons uh, one one can say. In any case, uh, to, this is counter uh, counter counter posed here uh, with a quote from uh, Alfred Sloan, um, CEO of General Motors uh, since the early 1920s, who says uh, you know pretty uh, clearly that uh, the primary object of the corporation is to make money. Uh, not just uh, motor cars and General Motors is indeed a creation of precisely that merger of corporate capital and Eastern finance that Midwestern mechanics like the Ford Motor Company, like Ford uh, and uh, his uh, his entourage, uh, so detested. Now, I argue in this chapter that is really we have underestimated the extent to which these ideological commitments actually give rise to the idea of a car uh, for the masses. So it was not so much a kind of wise or a clever uh, anticipation of uh, a business proposition that made the Ford Motor Company, but it was much more a kind of social provo provoca provocation and um, trying to make real in the economic sphere a kind of ideological uh, predilection. Uh, this is often a hard sell. I'd be ha happy to talk more about it in, uh, in the Q&A. Uh, just uh, since I promised you a picture, very briefly, this is uh, Henry Ford and his close associates in the early 30s. Um, you can see, uh, I think, one thing from this image, they do have a kind of image of themselves. Uh, you know, they're all former uh, self, uh, self, you know, uh, autodidact mechanics. None of them went uh, went to college. Um, and if you think that the way they style themselves uh, is bourgeois, wait, wait and see until you see them in about five minutes time together with the Soviet representatives. Uh, it's very interesting. Anyway, uh, chapter chapter two is, uh, as I said, a kind of global intellectual history of my life and work um, written well, ghostwritten in 1922, but uh, really ghostwritten in a kind of ingenious way in the sense that I think this book, uh, the ghostwriter Samuel Crowther does a, a, a terrific job encapsulating and if you want amplifying for its particular producer populist ideology for the 20th century uh, uh, at large. And uh, understanding this producer populist bent is the only way that you can explain why this book had such an impact. Uh, it's often been read as a kind of just, you know, lame capitalist apologia, but if it was that, why were people so up in arms about it? Uh, you know, splitting, if you want, the global public. So these are a couple of quotes, uh, you know, have your pick which side you're on. Uh, the book delivers a doctrine of salvation, says a German engineer, revelation and redemption, another voice from Germany. Uh, here is a more skeptical voice from Germany in the 1920s, uh, an aphoristic collection of disconnected thoughts. Uh, is Henry Ford an optimistic, muscular, and crystal clear thinker? Uh, one of uh, one, a German engineer who would uh, join the Nazi party says in the 1920s, uh, is he the most lucid and penetrating intellect of modern times? This is a voice from Japan. Um, or is he an extraordinary type of hypocrite, uh, which is, uh, which is uh, a Soviet uh, critique, the Soviet, uh, Soviet reception of uh, Fordism was, uh, you know, if you want, ambivalent, rejecting the ideology, but uh, ex extremely interested in, obviously, the, um, the production organization aspects. Is Henry Ford stricken with unconscious resistance to the written word? This is uh, Rexford Tugwell in a review of my life and work, Rexford, Rexford Tugwell, a future New Dealer. Uh, in uh, in uh, Roosevelt's uh, brain trust, or is he as Gramsci had it, 
after reading my life and work quite comical as a theoretician. Uh, well, so you can see there's there's a debate. What is uh, what is uh, evident? Um, what um, can be shown is that this book sparked a remarkable debate within Germany, uh, within the uh, Soviet Union. It goes through uh, several editions, competing editions, even uh, uh, kind of testifying to. Uh, I think this is also interesting uh, for for the Soviet historians uh, among you, uh, testifying to the relative openness uh, before, say, 1928 and 1929 of uh, the rationalization debate within uh, the Soviet Union that there were competing editions and uh, competing. Uh, competing voices uh, in the Soviet Union, uh, uh, readers uh, saying different things about this. Um, I talk about this uh, in the book. Uh, and the images here are uh, on the right, uh, the Soviet, uh, uh, the, the, the second Leningrad edition of my life, the translation of my life and work uh, from 1924. And on the left, uh, the remarkable copy uh, which was given to uh, Hitler uh, during his uh, during his house arrest, uh, where he was uh, where he was put under house arrest after uh, the failed putsch attempt of 1923. Uh, much of 1924, he uh, he spent this time and this year under house arrest, writing large sections of what would become Mein Kampf. And uh, this uh, kind of piece of material evidence, which actually recent, only, uh, only surfaced uh, you know, in recent years uh, after I had started writing this book, indeed, um, actually shows that uh, we, don't, we can't prove that he read it, but he certainly had it in his library in uh, 1924. And I speculate a, a little bit about uh, you know, what the impact may have been uh, you know, if, he, if, he, if he read it, which I think is likely. In 1924, so this is uh, you know the ideological reception, which really then sets up uh, the practical reception. I should generally say that my focus is uh, is in, in this book is the action happens in the 1930s. There was a lot of talk in the 1920s, but this is part of the argument. It was in fact only the re, uh, the reconfigurations. Uh, induced by the global depression, uh, the push towards military industrial buildup, uh, you know, left and right, both in the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany, for that matter, that uh, that mandated this uh, this uh, technology transfer. So the action happens uh, in the 1930s, uh, Stalinist industrialization and uh, the Nazi uh, Nazi military industrial buildup parallel at the same time. Uh, so uh, the the quotes here. So, so what I, I mean, what I, what I do in the chapter is I talk in in some detail about about the technology transfer. I talk about the Soviet delegation that is sent to um, uh, Dearborn, Ford Motor Company in particular, the way it works. This is actually very well documented uh, in uh, both uh, Russian and uh, Ford archives. Uh, and um, and so, so I make that into, if you want a kind of case study of this remarkable technology transfer, which is well known. Uh, that uh, that it is at the basis of Soviet industrial uh, uh, industrialization, but I think uh, it's well known, but actually still under researched. I think much more uh, could be done. It is absolutely central, and this is an argument that I try to make in the book. If you want to understand, uh, you know, Soviet industrialization, you have to look at it relationally, in the sense that there was no other way to industrialize. You know, we, we there's there's a kind of facile way of thinking about the issue as though it was just this Herculean self-induced effort. Um, but you needed, as a late developing uh, nation, which the Soviet Union was, access to uh, capital and technology, and those could only be sourced uh, abroad. How do you get access to a capital uh, being cut off from capital markets? The Soviet Union had to export with lethal consequences, as you all know, to import the, uh, the technology that was needed for uh, industrialization. And so uh, the Ford connection is a very important kind of paradigmatic example 
uh, of that. So uh, explore that. And then I talk uh, in the second half of the chapter about how uh, the factory that was built with four technical assistants, uh, the uh, Gaz uh, in Nizhny Novgorod, how it actually worked in the 1930s, uh, implementing Fordism was a drawn out and complicated affair, as you can imagine, and really uh, kind of started paying off um, paying off only uh, fairly late in the game, uh, in the late 30s, after the purges, and then in, in World War II. Uh, but this, or this, uh, uh, this attention and orientation towards America, also, you know, the, the, the Sovietists and, uh, uh, among you uh, will not be surprised by this, uh, but I think it bears uh, repeating that this is actually kind of a phenomenon that is characteristic of uh, catch-up development. Here you see it um, encapsulated in two quotes. Uh, a Ford, uh, a Bolshevik Ford booster, uh, Arseniy Mikhailov, uh, wrote a book about Ford in 1929, says the first five-year plan requires a swift and complete switch to the most advanced American technology, or Jonikitsi, uh, then uh, I think at the helm of Ropkrin, uh, later at the helm of uh, the, uh, the, the um, People's Commissariat of Heavy Industry. If indeed we hope to catch up and surpass American industry, we must absorb American technical achievements. So practically, you know, this was evident to Bolsheviks, uh, regardless of uh, ideological um, uh, predilection. So here are the Soviet representatives with uh, some of the same figures you just saw earlier. Um, you can see here Charles Sorensen, who is uh, Ford's uh, number 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 one man, linking uh, arms with Valery uh, Mijlauk, uh, uh, who is uh, then at the helm of. Uh, the Supreme Council of uh, the, uh, the National Economy. Uh, this is after the signature of the um, technical assistance agreement after this was signed between Rezincha and the Ford Motor Company in May 1929. Um, here an image, uh, you know, this is uh, probably a drawing. I've, I've, I've also seen it described as a, a photograph of an ar architectural model I'm not sure that's correct. It seems to me to be a drawing. But in any case, this is what uh, Gauze was supposed to look like. It did not quite uh, uh, look, uh, look like that, or it took some time to uh, be established. But this is uh, the blueprint of the factory that was built uh, as a result of this uh, technical assistance program. Um, in the interest of time, uh, you know, again, uh, be happy to talk more about this in the Q&A. In the interest of time, let me move on to uh, the Nazi, uh, the Nazi uh, case study here, uh, where, as I think I, I just mentioned earlier uh, at the outset already, the, the process of technology transfer looks very different uh, because what the Nazi regime did not have to do is kind of uh, embark on a wholesale technology transfer from abroad, uh, which uh, you know was because because unlike Soviet Russia, uh, Germany was a major industrial country, uh, had uh, in particular an engineering tradition, a deep engineering tradition, uh, and a deep engineering knowledge to fall back on, uh, and its developmental deficit, as uh, well identified by uh, industry representatives in the 1920s, and as uh, you know also identified by the, the Nazi regime uh, itself, its development de deficit vis-a-vis -vis the United States was. Uh, you know, uh, actually sectorally specific, in particular, the automobile industry. We think of the German automobile industry as one of the leading ones uh, today, and it certainly is, 
but this was not the case uh, really before uh, the 19 before the 1930s. Uh, unfortunately, the 1920s automobile industry in Germany was very weak and indeed saw itself at uh, uh, at a moment of near extinction vis-a-vis the overbearing American competition. As much as uh, you know, you can hear similar voices of despair from Italy and France uh, in that uh, in that uh, moment. So what the Nazi regime does, it finds ways, and I, this process I tried to describe in the book, finds various ways of, if you want, kind of cajoling, incentivizing, but also pressurizing. Uh, the um, multinational corporations, Ford and General Motors, who both have branches in Germany, uh, into, well, sharing proprietary technology and building up their mass production capacity in service of the military industrial buildup uh, that Nazi Germany is undertaking at this period. It's very explicit that uh, you might think, you know, Nazi Germany is a xenophobic regime. Uh, You know, didn't they kick out big foreign capital? Nazi and the Nazi Nazis were a little bit uh, a little bit more pragmatic uh, than that. In in, in fact, uh, made uh, made heavy use of the technological connections to American capital through uh, their branches in Germany, not only in the automobile industry, but uh, you know this is explored uh, in other uh, literature, uh, which uh, scandalizes the kind of complicity that is implicit in that uh, when it comes to IBM, for example, or Standard uh, Standard Oil. In any case, uh, internally, this is uh, phrased pretty explicitly, as you see here in the second quote, foreign capital is welcome as long as it subordinates its activities in Germany to the demands of state policy. Um, and uh, uh, Mr. Diestel, who's managing director of the Ford branch in Cologne, uh, you know, also says it quite accurately. According to present German ideas, an enterprise in Germany is only justified to exist in so far as it submits the general, uh, to the general uh, political and economic requirements of the state. And so these are interesting case studies that I tried to do. I talk, uh, talk about uh, the Ford branch. I talk about Opel, which is the General Motors branch, branch but happens to be the much more important one for, uh, for in, during the 1930s. It's simply a much bigger concern and the leading German uh, automobile producer in the 1930s. Uh, this is actually uh, an alliance, if you want, between General Motors and the, and the Nazi regime. They both think this cooperation is going just splendidly uh, before the war. And I make this into a case study of how uh, what has been described, uh, we're building off of recent literature that has described the Nazi political economy as a so-called steered market economy, uh, an economy in which the regime uses markets, property rights, and the law to uh, for its political purposes. I try to describe uh, these uh, this, this technology transfer uh, in uh, the context uh, of of, uh, of uh, this uh, you know, political and economic paradigm, the steered market economy. Uh, and so I talk uh, just, just a few images here in the center. You see Mr. James Mooney, who's the head of uh, General Motors Overseas Operations, who uh, gets to meet Hitler in 1934 and is, uh, is uh, in fact, uh, you know, um, is very uh, impressed uh, by the conversation that they have. He has to deal with this rather unsavory figure here on the right, Mr. Kepler, who is uh, Hitler's um, plenty potentially for economic questions in the early years uh, of uh, the regime. Uh, here are a couple of outcomes. Uh, the Volkswagen, Volkswagen is, if, if you want, in that chapter, the third case study, uh, which is uh, situated somewhat differently because it's not, uh, you know, uh, it's not based on uh, cooperation with an American multinational on the soil of Germany, but follows more the Soviet strategy of hiring engineers and uh, buying machinery in the United States, built during the 1930s, opened in 1939, infamously does not create a single Volkswagen for civilian purposes, but uh, comes in handy 
for West Germany when it inherits this uh, this Fordist capacity, if you want, after the war. So this is on the left, the Volkswagen headquarters uh, as it is being built in the 1930s. Still looks very much the same if you visit it today. It's quite striking. On the right, you have an image of um, the a brand new, uh, you know, kind of state of the art mass production truck factory that General Motors Opel builds uh, in 1935, 1936, which would become uh, the main forge of uh, the Wehrmacht's truck fleet uh, during uh, World War II. So some real uh, technological uh, and uh, industrial, uh, you know, assets, if you want, being uh, being built up here uh, for the war, which is the theme of chapter five, uh, War uh, of the Factories. And so there, you know, uh, there I, you know, half of the chapter is dedicated to Germany. The other half of the chapter is dedicated to the Soviet Union. And the part on Germany, I follow uh, the career of one particular figure, uh, one figure in particular, the German-American engineer, William Werner, who is this remarkable um, a figure who's born in the United States, you know, to German parents, kind of typical German-American. Uh, there are you know, many of those uh, in, in the period who migrated from Germany uh, to the United States in uh, the last decades of the 20, uh, 19th and the first decades of the 20th century. And then, so uh, William uh, Werner goes back to Germany, uh, apprentices as a machinist, uh, gains expertise, and then goes back like many engineers in the 1920s, many German engineers, goes back to the United States and ends up in the Midwest, uh, where he works uh, for Chrysler. And in the 1930s, he comes back again uh, to Germany, he takes uh, the helm of uh, what is then the second ranking automobile uh, concern in Germany, auto, uh, auto union, um, and becomes an ardent Nazi. And uh, then you can trace his career into the commanding heights of the German uh, wartime state steering apparatus, where he essentially acts as a kind of mass production enforcer, uh, using his American insights and American connections and credentials to try and whip up the productivity in uh, the Nazi uh, war uh, machine. Uh, in particular, drawing up the kind of blueprints for the major figures like Goering, who's quoted here in November 1941, uh, who uh, constantly compare uh, you know, a kind of deficient level of German industrial rationalization and productivity, not inaccurately, incidentally, to uh, the American level, which, uh, uh, which, well, you know, America hasn't officially entered the war yet at this conjuncture, but it is clear that sooner or later it uh, will. In terms of rationalization, German industry must become equal to America, Germany too must finally arrive at flow production. So you know, the characteristic Fordist uh, paradigm, assembly line production is decisive. And uh, so I look a little bit about how, uh, if you want a kind of state directed implementation of Fordism here, notice again, the state uh, as, as an actor that I'm focusing on is uh, accelerated uh, during the war. Uh, and then I shift the perspective and look one more time at uh, Gaz, Nizhny, uh, the factory in Nizhny, which uh, obviously during uh, that time was, uh, was uh, called, uh, the city was called Gorky. Um, and uh, look at the way in which, uh, as could be re reconstructed from the files uh, in Nizhny, um, the engineers at Gaz uh, use uh, various reconstructions of the factory to try and rationalize uh, war production uh, on, uh, on the blueprint of, uh, of continuous flow. And there is some exaggeration that is evident uh, just from the sources. But over the all, uh, overall, it seemed to me that the conclusion was warranted that a major implementation of uh, Fordist uh, dispensations actually takes place, at least at this factory, uh, which uh, was uh, you know, not an unimportant factory in the war, especially during the first phase when the war seemed to be going south for the Soviet Union. Gaz was behind the front 
uh, and uh, all the other factories were still being relocated east. It was a very important uh, you know, industrial base and remained the city of Gorky in itself remained that throughout. And uh, so Gaza engineers described this process of the war as, if you want, routinizing and finally uh, you know, indigenizing a kind of Fordist mass production uh, capacity in the Soviet Union. Uh, images, here you have Mr. William Werner here in civilian on the left uh, with two of the big uh, big wigs from uh, the Nazi um, aviation uh, complex uh, in front of aero engines at BMW, which is one of the firms uh, where you know Werner descended with his automobile mass production credentials and told them uh, that uh, they have to up uh, their game with the backing uh, precisely of these uh, well estate uh, technocrats. And this rather striking image is from Gauze in uh, 1944, which I pulled out of the files uh, there and they were friendly enough uh, to reproduce it uh, for me. Uh, what looks like a tank here is actually uh, is, is, is uh, technically um, a, um, a uh, unit of uh, self-propelled uh, artillery, the so-called SU-76 for which Gauze then actually became the major forge during, uh, during uh, World War II, somewhat less well-known than the more famous T-34, but um, equally consequential for, uh, the, for, the, for the Red Army's effort uh, on uh, in this uh, land war against uh, Nazi Germany. So this is uh, Gauze military production in 1944, uh, rather haunting image um, if, you, if you want. Uh, I have a conclusion then. Uh, what I do in the conclusion uh, is briefly, I mean, in the book, I have a conclusion to uh, my remarks uh, too uh, in a second. But uh, what I do in the conclusion in the book is uh, then just uh, give a little bit, it's more of an epilogue, actually. I try to, uh, to uh, follow, uh, follow the story into the post-war period, uh, arguing in particular that uh, the legacy of uh, the, technological, uh, the technology transfers of the 1930s indeed paid off handsomely for West Germany uh, in, uh, with Volkswagen in particular, which was, uh, if you want, um, at least part of the backbone of uh, the German economic uh, miracle after uh, World, War, World War II. But I compare it to the Soviet Union, where obviously you know, a, a mass production capacity was built up equally um, you know, that was good enough to win uh, the war against the Nazis, but then uh, remained internationally uncompetitive. And I think this is the key distinction. So uh, West Germany benefited from American strategic lenience and the re-dollarization of international markets, the opening up of export markets, which allowed uh, you know, the mass, uh, German mass production capacity to uh, then, well, flood, if you want, uh, world markets uh, under the auspices of American hegemony. The Soviet Union obviously did not have that luxury uh, in the context of the Cold War and for its own systemic inherent reasons, uh, you know, it was also particularly bad at translating um, technological imports from abroad at, uh, into indigenous um, technological and industrial innovation, which is, turns out, we now know this from the perspective of the 21st century, absolutely key if you want to pull off, pull off sustained uh, catch-up uh, development, uh, you know. So uh, look at Japan, South Korea, and China. I think there, there. This is clear, which is uh, which is interesting, obviously, from the perspective of uh, the later history of the 20th century and the ultimate Soviet decline. But I want to end my remarks on this larger um, uh, sort of uh, vista and and just suggest how how we might think about this story that I've uh, tried to lay out in the book in even larger terms. Uh, and so generally, I'm trying to make a case in the book that we need to look at uh, the 30s and 40s not as a kind of aberration, you know, a kind of illiberal nightmare interlude uh, from 
uh, you know, wedged between a kind of globalized period of pre-1914 and then a re-globalization after 1945. But as absolutely consequential, if you want to understand the makeup of the global political economy in the second half of the 20th century, I follow here on the heels of an insight suggested contemporaneously by Karl Polanyi in his great well-known book, which you all know, The Great Transformation, the title of which does not incidentally refer to the transformation from traditional economies to market society in the 19th century, which Paul Polanyi talks about at length in the book, but actually refers to the crisis of the 1930s. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, my, I'm curious, and this is sort of points to where my uh, research now for uh, in the future, uh, I think, is headed. I'm trying to understand the 1930s and the Great Depression as a, a really systemic crisis of uh, the type of uh, globalized capitalism that had come into its own in the late 19th century and ushers in a very different uh, different type of uh, global economic order uh, after 1945, um, which is broadly speaking, you know, the fall of a dispensation that was built on liberal imperial, um, uh, liberal imperial principles with weak sovereignty on the periphery into uh, a dispensation of national development competition. Uh, not coincidentally marked by decolonization and the rise of uh, uh, more activist nation states in the second half of the 20th century. And here, uh, you know, a very suggestive quote, again, contemporaneously from 1933, the Great Depression did not halt the Industrial Revolution. And, uh, Conliffe here is talking about the global, uh, about, uh, the global um, context, but actually accelerated it. Um, okay, so I'll end uh, here. I hope I did not go too much over time. And uh, thank, uh, thank you all, and uh, I look forward to uh, the comments, uh, uh, criticisms, questions, uh, and, uh, and other reactions. Thank you.